former U.S. National Rugby Team captain. Team captain. Head coach and general manager. General manager. Now, the co-founder and CEO of the New England Free Jacks. Now. Now. Full contact CEO with Alex Magleby. Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining Full Contact CEO today. I'm your host, Alex Magleby. I'm also co-founder and CEO of the humble, hardworking, free-spirited New England Free Jacks. Joining me today is super software nerd, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, rugby superhero, mentor to many, many, keeper of the table at Henrietta's, over 50 million <laughs> companies started, current co-founder and CEO of Tamer, Coalabs founder, Bowdoin Rugby, Boston RFC alum, and overall amazing human, Andy Palmer. Andy, thanks for joining me today. Oh, Mags, thank you so much. It's so great to be here. We're going to start with a bit of word game today just to get worked up, have a bit of fun. I'm just going to say a word, and you say the first thing that comes to mind. Polar bears. Oh, well, you know, the polar bears are near and dear to my heart. Um, Bowdoin is an amazing place, and uh, Bowdoin Rugby, you know, built all the character I have for the most part. Um, but uh, those those guys that play Maine, uh, rugby in Maine are pretty special to me. Um, they're uh, they're all amazing at the Portland Rugby Club, and uh, you know it's really great great rugby dynamic in Maine. Cambridge, yeah, you know uh, Cambridge, like the heart of entrepreneurship. Uh, you know the uh, amazing sort of culture in the ecosystem in. Uh, Cambridge innovation is uh, is unparalleled in my opinion, and um, it's a great place to start companies. And uh, also, a really stark contrast. You know, a lot of people compare Cambridge on the business side to Silicon Valley, and the difference here in Cambridge is a we're the, we're the heart of biotech, uh, and b um, we we really uh, you know we have a heart here, um, uh, a little bit of more of soul. Uh, you know, sometimes the Bay Area can be a bit, uh, um, uh, cap, you know, purely capital, capitalistic and Machiavellian, whereas here in Cambridge, I think we uh, we think about people a lot more. R is for rugby. Oh, my gosh. Well, well Mike Petrie wrote this great book, and, um, you know, he, he really, for, for, for his kids, and then he had it published, and uh, I'm a huge fan. I think that, you know, we can't get young people uh, – uh, uh, excited uh, about rugby early enough, and uh, there is no earlier than R is for rugby. So um, Mike Petri wrote this great book, and we're we're now uh, giving out uh, you know books to 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 anybody that wants them, uh, just to promote the game and get people reading about rugby. I love that initiative of getting R is for rugby out into the broader community, so people have access uh, to the book. You know, we got that a while ago. Um, we bought it from Mike Petri, a signed, a signed version uh, for our children. And uh, it's been great to share that with them and help them as they learn their ABCs. But then it's, oh, this is rugby, Dad. This is what you're always talking about. <laughs> exactly. That's right. A great way to share our passion and get them talking. Awesome. <laughs> And of course, this episode is brought to you by the Free Jacks, the humble, hardworking, free-spirited amazingness of Major League Rugby. Thanks to the Free Jacks. Go to shop.freejacks.com to pick up some discounted stunkity stunk. Use full contact CEO as a discount code. 
That's for a 1-5%, 15% discount on amazing Tough Comfort Free Jacks swag. And a bit about your background. You grew up uh, you grew up actually in the Midwest. Where, where was home originally? Yeah, I grew up in a small uh, town northwest of Chicago called Barrington. Um, and um, uh, it's a pretty John Hughes-like, you know, sort of existence. My uh, high school is pretty big, you know, a thousand kids in my class in high school. I played high school football there. Um, you know, we had a nationally, I played on a nationally ranked uh, high school football team and, um, uh, just, uh, had a, had a phenomenal experience. But, but when I came to New England, I was really looking to get into a small school, um, and, uh, kind of, uh, a more intimate environment. And, uh, uh, so, uh, Bowdoin was exactly that for me. Yeah. When you say it's a John Hughes experience, you, you stole a Ferrari with your friends, of course. <laughs> totally. Totally. Well, you know, I didn't, uh, I didn't have all the experiences that John Hughes likes to uh, show, but um, but probably aspired to some of them. And then, yeah, why Bowdoin? Uh, you know, I really, um, I, I, one of my friends in high school, his uh, older brother went to Bowdoin, and we just you know stopped by to check it out um, on a on a college tour, and you know, I fell in love with Maine, and I fell in love with New England, and, and kind of northern New England. And uh, I loved it so much that when I was in, you know, a lot of people went in there in college, like go go away for their junior year to, to a different country or something. I couldn't imagine leaving Maine. So I was I was just there and, and I loved it. Um, I love the liberal arts, although I really also kind of wanted a computer science degree. And um, I got really lucky at Bowdoin. The guy that was running the computer science department at Bowdoin at the time, Ken Silvestro, uh, was a uh, uh, postdoc of this guy, Marvin Minsky. Uh, who is a professor at MIT and one of the founding fathers of artificial intelligence. And so I started studying AI with Ken and Marvin um, uh, as an undergrad back in 1985. And um, it's been kind of wild. I mean, I've been doing the same thing at work, you know, uh, this sort of AI-based stuff uh, for 30-plus for years. But it's kind of nice now that it's popular and my kids actually understand what I do. Speaking of John Hughes and weird science, so yes. <laughs> you were able to get a liberal arts degree. You were able to study English. It was great liberal arts college experience, which part of that also is are all sorts of parts of the academics and, and back that up with a computer science degree and experience at a time probably when a lot of people weren't necessarily doing that. Yeah, I get an, uh, an, a degree in English and history, and uh, and a minor in computer science. If I had had a major at the time, I would have I would have had a major in CS as well. But um, you know, the department was tiny at the time, and um, but it was kind of the, the the quintessential liberal arts experience. I mean, the purpose of liberal arts is you can study anything and, and be as broad as you like. And I feel between all the the AI stuff that I was doing, plus reading Chaucer and and uh, Shakespeare and uh, uh, you, Dante, you name it. It was um, it was a fantastic experience, and playing rugby, like which was un- unreal, truly exceptional. And that's very similar to you know what I had at, at Dartmouth. I was able to become an engineer, but I was still able to take Shakespeare, um, and, and and that has certainly has been a part of my experience growing as a person. Is you know understand the data, but uh, keep the humanity closer, and that's been invaluable my career as a coach and uh, as an executive. Belshkin is the official chucka of the New England Free Jacks. Head over to shop.freejacks.com to order your custom Free Jacks chuckas today.
Andy, I think you've really been able to, you know, from the outside, it, you, you deliver high quality technology and, and things that are effectively changing the world and how data is managed. But the entirety of it, you know, you're actually working and you work really well with people and you're connecting people to that technology. And uh, I think that's the brilliance of it. And that's the brilliance of the education that you've had and, and what you continue to bring to the table. You know, I think the best coaches in the world are able to do that. They're able to use, they're able to innovate and they're also able to use technology to help make things more efficient. But at the end of the day, that's making things more efficient uh, for the human, for the experience, for the people. Yeah, you know, it's it's really amazing. You know, like I, M- Marvin uh, Minsky taught me two things. You know, one was um, no no algorithm is useful without enough great data. And so I've always been a data hungry person, you know, um, and in all the work I've done. And um, the other thing he taught me is it's always about the human and the machine working together um, as a team. And, um, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, in my career, I've always done uh, teams, you know, as, as an entrepreneur. I never did the kind of lone entrepreneur thing against all odds. I always teamed up with people. Um, my partner for the last uh, 20 years has been a, a, is a guy named Mike Stonebreaker, who's a professor over at MIT and uh, was at Berkeley for many years and, and uh, you know, the last couple of years won, won a, a Turing Award. And um, but, but for me, it's always starting great companies is, is really about, um, uh, you know, bringing together great teams and uh, that uh, the, the, the image that a lot of people have of entrepreneurship as the, is as this single person against all odds. Um, but I think more, much more common and much more accessible uh, to most people is the idea of, of doing entrepreneurship as a member of a core startup team with two, three, four people um, that uh, support each other, complement each other, um, and uh, uh, also like starting companies is really freaking hard and and emotionally draining. And having a partner um, when when you're going through that uh, emotionally is uh, much much better, much more fun uh, in terms of the experience. And you're on your. 50 plus company. I'm on my fourth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's like, uh, you know, I, I've done eight, eight myself directly. And then I funded a lot of people at, at my, my fund, COA, um, which we're in, we're in our second fund now. Um, but our focus at, at COA is we back uh, first time entrepreneurs. Um, and most of those, more than 80% of, of the entrepreneurs we back are either women or immigrants in some way, shape or form. And, um, the returns in that fund have been great. So, you know, we get like, you know, you know, 37% plus IRR, uh, net IRR. And, and, and what's incredible about that is like, you know, you can, you know, both, you can back these, uh, traditionally underserved populations of, of entrepreneurs and do incredibly well, uh, financially. And so um, I think there's a, a, a real needs to be a real focus now on in traditional venture capital and and uh, funding sources for entrepreneurs and uh, this underserved community of, of women and immigrants. So with Coa Labs, everybody out there, if you quickly read it when you see it, it also spells koala bs but don't be confused <laughs> <It's>, uh... <laughs> right. well you know Co- koa labs the initial inspiration came from a maori word word uh really? uh yeah yeah that means happiness yeah you know, koa that is still- and then 
Yeah. And then it also, you know, it also happens to be this like tree that grows in, uh, you know, the Pacific, uh, in Hawaii, most, most notably. And, and it's a very strong tree. So, so those are the two things. Well, and also the, in the Midwest, they have these campgrounds called, Co- uh, uh, KOA. And, uh, we, we like to think of ourselves as kind of a, a safe haven for entrepreneurs. So how do you decide where you're going to invest? How do you make that decision? Well, you know, the first the first step is, you know, uh, somebody showing up here at, at Henrietta's table and, and having a meeting with uh, uh, my, my my friends at, at Koa and I, and uh, uh, we get to know each other. I, I'm a big believer. There, I think there are generally two philosophies about um, early stage investing. Um, one is that you, you kind of back ideas and then you sort of add people to the ideas. And the other one is you back people and uh, they'll figure out the, the, the right ideas over time. Uh, and so so I, I really back people. And so a huge part of that first phase for me is getting to know the person. And like I said, we back, you know, 80% of the folks we back are uh, either women or immigrants. And um uh, all, almost all of them, yeah, I would say no, pretty much all of them are first-time entrepreneurs, people that haven't started a company them, th- themselves previously. Many of them happen to be younger, um, you know, earlier in their career, in their 20s and 30s, uh, but we also back people that are uh, that are at a later stage of life who have decided that uh, they need to start a company. Um, but it almost always starts with getting to know the person, their values, and, and it's really hard. You know, I mean, it, you know, the entrepreneurship for me is a full contact sport. And, um, I, you know, I give this talk at, at, at Tuck and HBS and, and Stanford on, you know, full contact entrepreneurship. And, you know, it, you, can, you can really get hurt, um, you know, starting companies. <laughs> and so you, you, before, you, before you lace up your entrepreneurship boots, you've really got to know that you want to be out there on the field. You got to understand what kind of a, a game you're playing, uh, whether it's just a friendly or, or, or whether it's uh, uh, going to be a knockdown uh, drag out. And uh, that, that, that is, a, you know, it's sort of a, a huge part of the assessment that goes on for me when I'm meeting somebody is do they have the, uh, uh, do they understand what they're getting into and do they have the character that it's going to take um, to get to the, to the other side and be successful because they're going to be successful. They're going to get, they're going to get dragged down. They're going to get, um, you know, they're going to get hit hard in a whole bunch of ways. And so they have to have the character to be able to survive and get through to the other side. That's that innovation curve. You start out, things are going really well, but then you start going down the, that, that smiley face, and it, it, it's, uh, that's always the hardest part. Uh, you know, here, and certainly for us, New England Free Jacks, you know, people think we're absolutely crazy sometimes. Wait a minute, you're doing a startup in sports entertainment in the United States with a focus on rugby. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, right. Like that's, a, that's exactly the kind of person I like to back, yeah. people that are batshit crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to rugby, you started playing when you were in college at Bowdoin. In the mid '80s, that's yeah, way back in the day where the ball was still made out of stone. Yeah, it, it was like a sandlot game, you know. When I when I started playing at Bowdoin, and uh, ironically, the guys in Portland had originally started the cl- uh, started uh, the Bowdoin club uh, back in the early '70s, and it it always kind of just you know been you know they'd play a few games every year, and but it was never that serious. When I was there, we were able to recruit this great guy, Rick Scala, who, um, you know, was the coach at Bowdoin for 30 plus years. Yeah. And, um, 
and such a great guy. And, and, he, and he, the, the, the beautiful thing about, you know, the way Rick uh, coached was, um, you know, that, that he really uh, focused on building character. Um, and uh, it, it truly represented the values of the game. And uh, when you're at a place like Bowdoin, you know, like it's, uh, you know, you're not, you're, you're probably, you're probably not going to, you know, end up on the Eagles. Um, and so, you know the the goal of 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 playing the sport and playing any sport at a Division three school like that um, really should be about building character. And um, uh, Rick did a great job of that, and that tradition carries on today um, with the the new coach Jake Faulty, who's doing a great job up there. Yeah, numerous famous alums from Bowdoin. You know, right? Nathaniel Hawthorne. He he went to Bowdoin. Scarlet Letter author, part of that transcendental movement. You know, and, and that's and that's very free Jackian kind of those thoughts that humans are inherently good, that nature is inherently good, you know, and that not only are people inherently good, but they're at their very best uh, when truly self-reliant and independent. And I can't express enough how very much that is thematically tied into uh, our brand and, and and the sport of rugby, but our brand especially as the, as the New England Free Jacks. You started playing at Bowdoin, and then where did the rugby life take you from there? Well, you know, I got really lucky to be selected to um, go on a tour to Australia and New Zealand with a bunch of uh, folks from uh, uh, a bunch of other college kids from New England. A guy named Martin Kingston, who was the coach at, at Harvard at the time, uh, uh, and Tony Reynolds, uh, and um, a few others, uh, put together this amazing tour to uh, the North Island of New Zealand and then uh, up the east, uh, east coast of Australia. And uh, we had an amazing time. And for me, it was transformational. Uh, you know, play, playing rugby at that level, um, that young, uh, was uh, was truly inspirational, and it, it uh, cemented for me, you know, the primary focus of my life, you know, for the following, uh, you know, five or six years after we got back from tour was all about rugby. Um, and uh, I played in Boston, and uh, until I got hurt uh, uh, playing sevens, and uh, uh, and then you know that sort of ended my my it busted my knee and it ended my rugby career. But um, uh, but it was uh, uh, but it was the best best time of my life, truly. Yeah, nothing like um, a rugby tour to uh, bring people of all shapes and sizes and backgrounds together. It's, the, it's such an amazing democratizing experience uh, to really develop uh, camaraderie and respect for for others and have an awareness about the world, which is one of the great things about, about rugby. And, you know, at the Free Jacks, we're really trying to work hard to provide access to that, to that experience, whether that's being a fan um, and being a part of match day festivals where everybody's having a good time, kind of no, no matter how much exposure you've had to the game to date, uh, but it's, it's there to, to have a great time and be good to other people uh, or having access to, to learning the game, you know, and, having adequate fields to play on and quality coaching and quality identification opportunities for more high performance uh, play, you know, and, and being able to, to, to bring that to um, various uh, population demographics is really, really important part of our mission. And, and, and then you went to uh, Tuck Business School at Dartmouth? Yeah, I, you know, um, eventually when, when I got hurt, I couldn't play rugby anymore. Um, you know, I, I decided to get serious about my career and I, I'd always just done programming to support my rugby habit. Um, and, um, but then, you know, when, when I couldn't play anymore, I decided to go back to school and, uh, because my dad went to Dartmouth, um, and, 
Kentucky is like the burden of business schools. It's very small, very intimate. Isn't there so, something like a um, study I, in the 80s and I was like, oh boy, one of those. But the Bowdoin was like the number two drinking school in the country and lo and behold, Dartmouth was the number one. <laughs> <laughs> there, there might be a theme there. I, I'm, I try not to emphasize that, but um, but I had a great time at Tuck and it, it was an amazing opportunity and very, very, very good experience. And But it was a bit weird, you know, as an, as an entrepreneur, um, you know, the, a lot of these business school folks are, are very conservative and go into investment banking and consulting. And so um, I was a bit of a fish out of water in terms of my career interests there. And um, uh, after Tuck, uh, I went down to Austin, Texas, and uh, had a chance to work with a, a great company, uh, a guy named Joe Lemont, who started a company up in, in Palo Alto uh, and then moved it down to Austin. And... Um, uh, a company called Trilogy, which is an AI company, basically the same stuff I had been working on as an undergrad, and um, and that was a blast. We grew from you know uh, a small group of uh, dozens of people up to thousands of people within two or three years during the height of the boom, and uh, and then we did a spinoff company uh, from Trilogy called PCUitter.com uh, that we took public in 1997, uh, and that ran up to what people today would you know call a, a unicorn, a billion and a half market cap, and uh, all the requisite things. So, um, so it was a great, a great run and in a great, great time to do that in Texas. It was a lot of fun in Austin. I uh, really love that town. So can you just break down that a bit further for us, for me and, and others? Um, you know, you were, so you were into artificial intelligence applications, uh, at the time and just fill us in on that, what that means. Yeah. So, so at uh, trilogy, you know, we, we focused, um, on automating uh, uh, an application called uh, sales configuration. So, um, you know, when uh, back in the early 90s, if you were a sales rep at a company like Hewlett-Packard and you submitted uh, an order uh, for a new computer that that somebody wanted to buy, um, that was all done manually and there was no system behind it. And uh, what Joe and the team at Trilogy had built um, was an AI system that uh, allowed you to automate to configure uh, computers accurately. And we estimated that um, HP, because of these misconfigured orders that were being submitted manually, they were losing about a million dollars a day uh, because of this problem. And so we were able to charge them, uh, HP and others, a lot of money um, simply by making sure that all the orders that got submitted into their company um, were accurate orders. And the techniques, the AI techniques that were behind how you uh, make sure that these orders are correct were, uh, you know, uh, it was a, uh, a constraint-based inference engine um, and kind of a very well-known set of techniques in AI back in the day. But now these, these same techniques are being applied very broadly across the entire economy these days. So um, what we were doing at Trilogy was pretty unique back in the early 90s, but, um, but now everybody's doing it. Yeah, and so how did you get from there to starting... Tamer. Yeah, so I came back to you know I, my my uh, ex wife uh, is from uh, is from New England, so we moved from Austin back to New England once we had our uh, uh, third kid. So um, uh, kind of like you, you know, we were we were pumping them out, um, and uh, all the extra support we could get was 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 appreciated. And uh, so so when we got back here, we started a couple of uh, other companies, and then you know like I, but I had this feeling, uh, you know, 
from from my experience in tech in the 90s, which was I kind of felt like built a lot of software, sold a lot of software, made a bunch of money, but how's the world any better or different? And so I got really interested in the life sciences and um, in uh, particular in cancer drug discovery and development. Uh, one of my one of my partners, Frank Moss, a uh, really successful entrepreneur um, and uh, uh uh, uh, PhD from, from, from MIT. Frank, um, Frank and I got involved in working with some guys in, in, in Cambridge that were doing, uh, drug, uh, cancer drug discovery and development. And, uh, we kind of brought the, kind of the latest and greatest information technology and, and AI techniques into drug discovery and development. We helped start a, a biotech company called Infinity Pharmaceuticals. Um, and then eventually from there, I, I, I ended up, uh, starting another company called, uh, Vertica, uh, with my partner Mike Stonebreaker, and then uh, from uh, out of Vertica, I uh, went over to Novartis for a few years and, and ran all the software and data engineering over at, at uh, Novartis's research group. Uh, and then uh, after that, while we were there, uh, Mike and I, my partner Mike and I, were doing some research at MIT that uh, uh, was a project called Data Tamer, and that that project ultimately turned into the company that we call Tamer. And my partner Mike and I have done this five times now where we um, do research in his lab at MIT over at the computer science and AI lab. And then um, maybe, you know, one in 10 of the projects that Mike has in his lab are sort of commercially viable. And so then we'll uh, take that technology out, uh, open source the, the tech um, and hire the postdocs uh, that we're working on the project in the company and then kind of build the company out from there. And that's exactly how Tamer started. Um, it started as a research project called Data Tamer um, uh, in a paper that we, that, that we published uh, back in 2011. And then, um, uh, you know, and started the business. And, you know, now we're up to about 140 people and almost cash flow positive and, uh, uh, you know, growing uh, uh, really dramatically. That's super cool. How, how do we use data, you know, to provide the best possible experience we have for our fans, driveway to driveway on match day festivals, you know, and certainly to improve the experience for them in those environments, uh, for all involved, but also kind of that 30 seconds a day respite uh, to provide that same experience? I think this is all about data, right? Like, you know, like the, um, I think it's going to be a really cool to watch as you know, rugby becomes mainstream in the U.S. Um, and uh, but it really, I, th I think, especially for rugby folks, starts with you know data about what their interests are, what they care about. Um, you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I'm a really you know passionate All Blacks fan, and so um, you know, as 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 a rugby fan. Um, you know, knowing, knowing that, um, you know, sort of enables, uh, would enable the Free Jacks or any, any professional rugby team, uh, to, you know, sort of tune things to me. I'm going to be a big fan of any, uh, any Kiwis that are on the team. Uh, I'm going to want to follow them and, you know, uh, fanboy them. And, uh, uh, and so I think, you know, uh, the, the, as rugby develops uh, in the U.S., um, I think that uh, using data as a strategic asset um, to market um, directly to those fans uh, and build an experience that is tuned to, to their interest is, uh, is very powerful. Yeah, and the, the key learning, uh, certainly for us, is aggregating, taking that data from all the various sources and making sure it's, it's uh, quality data and then where we really use it, use able to use that, excuse me, uh, able to use that to 
to help our fans and to make the experiences better. And that's that's key that we're that we're learning and, and working on. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's 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 really it's really challenging and also uh, also really exciting. And Sandy, so you've been on a lot of teams. You've been on a lot of companies. You've run teams. You've been on a lot of, you know, rugby teams. You've been on a lot of corporate teams. And at one stage, you said, "I work for the people who work for me." Well, you know, uh, I, I think it's a, you know it's 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 a value that I learned from rugby, which is um, the best teams are uh, consist of folks that are uh, selfless and willing to. Uh, sacrifice their own interest in in the interest of the su- success of the overall team, and um, and so uh, it, it, with, when you have a bunch of uh, uh, software engineers, um, they they really their individual interests are often and in working on the coolest and the most interesting projects, and sometimes you have to convince them to work on projects that are less interesting to them intellectually, um, but are the things that really matter for the company. And so, um, uh, I, I spend a lot of my time, you know, talking to them about their interest and what they care about. And, and I also, I really do view myself as, as serving them. I, you know, uh, at Tamer, uh, you know, I, I'm in service of, uh, the people that, uh, are on our team. And our primary goal, uh, at Tamer is professional development. That, uh, it's the one way we compete for the best talent. That if we, um, the people at Tamer believe that, uh, we're more committed to their professional development than uh, anybody that might want to hire them at Google or Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or Microsoft, um, then we've got a much better chance of retaining those people in the long term. And so we've injected professional development into the core uh, of our culture. And uh, again, you know, this, this kind of a learn, you know, core learning culture for me is something that I picked up in rugby. And, um, you know, much as I was a student of the game uh, of rugby, I feel like, you know, I, I'm really, you know, a student of entrepreneurship and, and what it takes to build great software. And uh, we're, we're all as a team, we're constantly studying that. And my goal is to, to especially bring the young people um, into a culture um, where they have a, a positive uh, working environment and uh, tr- almost unlimited professional development. Um, and, and so, so these are the things. This is for, for me, this is what it means when I say, you know, I work for the people that, 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 that work for me. Yes, some really good nuggets there. How do you find those type of people? Is it you kind of, you know, you, you actively seek out those type of people or is this, you know, you're able to bring them in house and the training is so good in, internally that uh, you can kind of make them those type of efficient um, parts of the team? There's so many great young people out there in the world, and you know we, we, we like to hire the best. Like so, so we really, you know, we would like to hire the smartest folks we can possibly get our hands on. A lot of those folks happen to come from top tier educational institutions, but they can also come from, uh, you know, uh, uh, almost any place. Um, you know, we hire people out of Northeastern and UMass Lowell, and you know, these great, you know, great institutions, but maybe not as 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 as, as high of a uh, of a brand, so to speak. But, um, you know, when we also, the other thing we filter on is like at Tamer, what we do is kind of like data plumbing. And so, you know, we try and filter our people that are actually interested in that problem. And, you know, back to the rugby analogy where, 
um, you know, to play rugby, like you got to be interested in getting your, you know, getting yourself dirty and, and um, getting in there and, you know, and putting your, 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 your hands in uh, to, to, to do whatever it takes. And so another one of the things that, that we look for when we're hiring folks is people that are not afraid to go to the face of the wall and do the, the, the hard work that's required every, every single day. And uh, we, we generally don't hire people that are, you know, you'd think of as like professional managers, right? Um, you know, we, we like to build the management skills. We like to say you can build the management skills over time, but the, the raw intellect and the raw interest in what we're doing, those are things that, um, uh, you know, have to sort of be innate in the person. So you find you go out and seek intelligence and curiosity, and then you teach them the necessary bureaucratic skills that they're going to need to manage systems. Yeah. Hopefully uh, to, for better or worse, you know, I'm, again, I'm a, I'm a bit of a rule breaker and um, as an entrepreneur and, um, you know, sort of, you know, a, you know, bureaucracy and process are, are, are really, really tough for me to swallow. <laughs> Some of it's required when you start to get bigger as a company, but, uh, um, right? yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and of course, when you've, you've got more than two people, uh, you've got politics, so um, so you always have to worry about that. Yeah. So tactically, you know, we hired folks who have a lot of curiosity and you know uh, have demonstrated work ethic and a desire to really be a part of this thing that's much bigger than all of us and, and moving it forward. And they're very committed to the values of the organization. You know, being um, connected to our community and helping our community get access to the values of the sport, uh, doing it in a economic, uh, environmentally conscious way, you know, the match day festivals, doing it where we're going to have a lot of fun, uh, but we're going to take care of each other. Uh, no matter what your background is, you're, you're welcome. And, you know, a, a great example of that, well, there's a couple for sure that, that stick out, Ollie Englehart, you know, kind of who's been with us the whole time. He has his hands in everything in the business, but certainly very curious as important, very hardworking, and uh, probably even more importantly than that, is very able to adjust and adapt in a very fast-changing environment, which is not, um, which is a hard skill, and um, always been a big part of of the organization, helping to grow the organization. And same with Tom Kindly on the rugby side. Again, young, um, but um, certainly very hungry, willing to do the work, but uh, very curious about how to do it better and improve it, and seeking mentors throughout the world, which I think is absolutely just brilliant. And then certainly we have a great board. You know, we have a great board of the Free Jacks, and um, I'm able to work with um, some very talented people on our board. Uh, what you've been on, I mean, I've been kind of on boards for 20 years in various capacities, nonprofits and for-profits. You've done that way more than me, um, you know, both working with and being on boards. Do you have a little advice for us in that regard? Well, I, first and foremost, I think you you guys are, are doing a great job, and you know you know really appreciate what you're doing and building you know the you know uh, what will will be the first and the the preeminent you know uh, professional rugby team here in in, in New England. Um, and credit to you you and Eric and and the whole team. 
but um, you know, I, I think one of the things that that matters the most uh, is uh, you know when 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 building teams like this is that uh, you know building diversity uh, uh, in, in from the very beginning, and uh, I, you know I really you know talking about diversity in the broadest sense, not just uh, you know sort of gender or or uh, or race um, or, or or socioeconomic. But also like gender of, of mindset and perspective. And, um, it's one of the best things about rugby is, you know, is the fundamental diversity of the game. And, um, you know, I know you guys have been sort of a role model for this. And, and I, I think that, it, you know, it's going to be, um, so important for rugby, um, in our country that, um, you know, we really leverage the fact that, that, that as a sport, um, you know, rugby is so much more diverse, um, than other, uh, many other contact sports. And, um, so as you guys are building your organization, I think that's a, you know, sort of a key, um, you know, a key thing to, uh, to stick to. Um, and, uh, as you guys are growing, the other thing that, that I think is essential, you know, for, 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 for rugby, you know, at this stage is I think money really matters a lot. And I know there are, uh, there's the potential for huge infusions of, of tens of millions of dollars of, of money into rugby, um, in the U S in the next, you know, uh, you know, couple of dozen years. And, um, uh, I think it's going to matter a lot, and how how we spend that money, I think, is really important. And I know you guys are really committed to uh, youth development and and the, the the grassroots development of the game. And uh, I, I think that's a, a you know another thing I think that's going to be really important is to you know connect uh, the the fabric of 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 your team into the fabric of of youth rugby in in, in New England um, in order to be successful in the long term. Well said. I mean, you know, as an entrepreneur, being part of an entrepreneurial experience, having to wear multiple hats and do multiple different things, and then sometimes doing a deep dive, but then being able to jump back into other areas and adjust to what's happening around you. You know, certainly rugby is just an unbelievable teaching tool for that. So yeah, you're an open side flanker and you're running to hit the rock and somebody else on your team made a different decision. So you go with that and you you have to adjust, even though there was maybe... 10 things to do and three of them were more right than the other three, which were more right than the other four. Um, and it wasn't the choice that you necessarily would have made, but now you have to adjust and, and go support um, your teammate, which I think is a very, very good pressure teaching uh, situation. Plus you have to adapt, you know, it's just that, uh, that mindset here is we got 10 seconds to quickly discuss between 15 of us or seven of us, the tactical change that needs to happen. There's not a lot of time for a raw raw and it's got to be, concise and the ability to change. And I, I think that the game is perfect for that. I think that's also why you see, you know, so many rugby players uh, become successful leaders and, and, you know, running startups, but also in medicine and in education, but just having that real entrepreneurial adaptable spirit. Brother, there's so, so much great stuff packed into what you just said. I mean, it's well said. And, you know, like uh, th- this idea of, you know, um, you know, uh, uh, the, the ability to, uh, assess your, you know, uh, for every player on the rugby field to uh, be part of the strategy and part of the execution of the strategy to win a game um, is really what attracted me to it from football. You know, I, I started playing football in college and, you know, once I started playing rugby, I could never go back because uh, there's so much more uh, intellectual stimulation in rugby. And uh, as a game, right, it really teaches you these lessons. And, 
um, you know, builds character uh, that, uh, you know, coming off of the Super Bowl here last week, um, you know, I, I, you know, I, football for me is, you know, like I appreciate it and I like it, but, um, but it just seems boring and kind of rote and very routine. Um, and I think especially for young people growing up, um, you know, rugby is a, is a fantastic alternative to, to football um, because a, it's a bit safer. And also, like, it's just, uh, you know, the, the, the opportunity to develop, to develop character playing rugby is, is, is much, much larger um, just because of the nature of the game. Yeah. So, you know, that decision making running up the field and am I going to pass left to Sarah or? All right to uh, Jonesy, and you know, or am I going to run it? And everybody's going to have to support that decision, no matter what that decision is. And there's probably a more right decision and a somewhat right decision, a less right decision, but it gets made, and we all then have to support it. That's right, and and it's a, the best companies that I've ever started have cultures that are that are exactly like that, where individuals are empowered to make decisions every single day, um, and they don't have to you know check in with the bureaucracy and look for oversight. They're they're free to execute. They're free to run. They have, like you said, they have space. Yeah, and just think here yeah, from a leadership perspective. You know, the coach creates that environment with the players and the players are kind of leading that environment. And then the players have not only the tactical understanding to make adjustments, but they have the strategical understanding underpinning it to be able to then make those decisions under pressure without, you know, the coach input that you get in some other sports. And you kind of do, you do do a thousand things. And how do you, how do you do it? How do you measure your day? You know, I, one of the times that we met, I show up for a meeting and it's at Henrietta's, which is, you know, a great place to get breakfast, a restaurant in, in Cambridge. And somebody else is there beforehand. Looks like you're having breakfast with them. You know, I, I sit down, we have breakfast. Amazing. Somebody else comes. I think you'd have like a thousand breakfasts a day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I, I I really try hard to eat only one, yeah. uh, but <laughs> but um, but it's uh, uh, it, it's fun. It's stimulating. You know, it's really interesting. And uh, you know, it's uh, you know my 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 partner Chin and I are sitting here looking at each other right now at Henrietta's, and um, our our Chin is a, a tough grad, and um, you know, our first conversation started right here, and. We just started hanging out together and talking about stuff that we were both interested in, uh, startups and technology. And, you know, before we knew it, we were just working together. And so um, I, I think, you know, it, it's kind of like that. And, you know, when we when we first started COA, we called it a startup club and very intentionally referring to, you know, kind of the, the dynamic that you get in a rugby club when you get a bunch of people that want to get together and hang out and play rugby. Um, you know, COA has always been uh, like a startup club. Um, where it's a bunch of people that get together. And so you sit here at Henrietta's and, you know, yesterday I was sitting here and the table next to me was my friend Christopher Alberg, who, who started Recorded Future, wildly successful company here in Boston. And, um, uh, and, uh, and Rich Miner, who was one of the co-founders of Android. Um, and Rich, Rich is on my board at Tamer and was on, is on Christopher's board as I was, you know, and so like th- there's a, you know, a camaraderie, um, that comes, uh, from in the startup world. 
that for me is very reminiscent in, uh, of, of what I experienced in rugby. And, um, and, and that camaraderie is really important because, like, uh, you know, whenever you start these companies, things are prone to go wrong. Like, they're going to go really bad and wrong at some point. And if you don't have those, uh, the, the, those compadres, those, those partners uh, that you can lock arms with when, when things are tough, um, it, it can be brutal. And so, um, you know, I really believe the camaraderie and again, team is sort of essential to be successful in doing startups and in entrepreneurship. And, uh, I, I learned all of that stuff and all those skills that, you know, in, in, in rugby. And part of that camaraderie is just, you know what, calling BS on that, something like that. <laughs> That's exactly right. Like, like, dude, like uh, one of my one of our other good friends is uh, this guy Kelsey Cole, who played rugby at Bowdoin and here in Boston. And um, Kelsey is a is a prop, and you know, you know, weighs, you know, a big prop for that matter. Um, but he, he has got this thing where he he loves to kick the ball. Like, I, and I don't know where it comes from, but like given a little bit of space and in a tiny bit of, of time, he, the, the guy's going to put, put his foot to the, to the ball. And it's hilarious to watch on the field as long as you're not playing with him yeah. at the time. Yeah. But like after every game, it's like, Kelsey, don't kick the freaking ball. Come on. Like, give me a break. <laughs> but same thing in startups, right? Your best, your best friends, like that are, that are off authentic with you and they're like they're, they'll be like no 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 way like before you do that like stop like you you can't you're really sure you can pull that off yeah. Yeah. probably not should be kicking the ball <laughs> yeah, yeah probably not kicking the ball you're big and strong just run that's right that's, I, that's the kind of flanker i was i was like you know like i just just take the ball into contact and get and get it out yeah <laughs> quick rapid fire if you could redo your life what is the biggest thing you would change oh wow that's a really great question um you know um i, I think that there's there's a part of me that wishes that when i graduated from college that I had just flown out to the Bay Area and spent, you know, three to five years, um, you know, working at Apple um, or, or maybe Seattle with Microsoft at the time or, um, you know, I, I sort of missed that opportunity. But primarily, you know, I, I was busy playing rugby and traveling around the world and having fun. So so I guess, you know, I don't regret that. But um, but I, but I never really had that sort of hardcore Silicon Valley uh, tech experience. And, um, so I wish I had spent, uh, you know, done that at, at, at some point I did live out, I moved out there, you know, uh, five or six years ago and lived there for six months. But, um, so, you know, I, I think that when, when you're young and, uh, and you're interested in tech, especially that, you know, um, having that experience of living in the Bay area for, uh, for three to five years, um, it is a very unique experience. It's a, it's incredible out there. And, um, uh, so, so that's the one thing I probably wish I had, had done at some point. Yeah. And you're in that Cambridge ecosystem. Now, what you could argue is, you know, in some, in some areas and some things stronger than, than Silicon Valley, uh, certainly different. Yeah. And yeah, Cambridge is, is, is different, right? Like, you know, it is, you know, it is not the same. And 
for, for way too long in, in the Cambridge startup ecosystem, you know, people were sort of always comparing themselves to the Bay Area, but like, it, it's really just different. Like we're more innovative here. We have, you know, Cambridge is the kind of place where lots and lots of companies start and, um, you know, some will grow here. Some will, uh, decide to go out to the Bay Area or down to New York and, and, and grow up there. Um, but there's so much raw intellectual horsepower laying around on the ground in, in, in Cambridge that, um, this is a natural birthplace for great new companies. And, um, one of my favorite venture funds here is, is, uh, uh, Katie Ray's fund, uh, that is, uh, called the engine, uh, which is, is focused on MIT start, uh, spin outs. And they have this great new, uh, fission company called, called Commonwealth Energy, which is, um, you know, could, you know, like completely change the game in, 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 uh, energy. And, um, you know, these are the kinds of companies that, you know, can and should, you know, start here in Boston. Um, with all the, you know, fantastic intellectual talent that's laying around on the ground. Yeah. yeah I grew up in Salt Lake City and I remember that when they, um, quote unquote found cold fusion. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the genie grants you one wish. What do you wish for? Um, I wish that, uh, major league rugby, uh, become successful yeah. and that the free jacks, uh, win, win the championship, yeah. uh, you know, for, you know, three or four years in a row before we give somebody else a chance to do it. Absolutely. Love that. Any, uh, good books reading lately? Um, yeah, you know, I, I've got the, this book, uh, uh, R is for resilience, um, which is, I think is a great book and, especially in context of everything we've been through with the global pandemic, um, you know, that uh, I think resilience is kind of a, is, is a key trait um, that we all need to aspire to. And uh, yeah, but the R is for resilience is the, is the, my, my favorite latest book. Yeah. Anybody out there uh, who you played, played with rugby wise, or you see out there in the rugby world who could uh, uh, fight a grizzly bear, with no weapons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, um, uh, I really, uh, you know, like these, these folks I played rugby with up in Maine at the Portland Rugby Club um, were, were amazing. And we, we had this prop, uh, we, we called them Jabba the Hutt. Um, and, um, uh, or JT Hutt and, you know, uh, JT, he was, he was amazing. And, uh, like that, that guy, like I, I can't imagine any, uh, any mammal that he couldn't tame, uh, if, uh, if given the opportunity. <laughs> At some point we're going to collect all of the grizzly bear fighting recommendations from all the podcasts and get them in a room together with a grizzly bear. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to be in that room. I would definitely, you know, not 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 want to smell it, but uh, but I'd want to be there. Yes. Uh, what is your favorite uh, piece of rugby merchandise? Free Jacks kit or stonk or whatever it is called these days for the kids these days. Well, I, you know, I, I got a, you know, the first free Jacks game I went to, uh, Eric gave me a, a, a jersey and, uh, yeah, I still got that jersey and, um, you know, it's, uh, it's precious to me. And, uh, I, I have this really irrational, uh, habit 
of framing rugby jerseys when they give me, you know, like uh, Tony Papura uh, gave me uh, his uh, jersey that he wore when he was, uh, when he played Russia. And uh, so I've got that framed and I've got, and so like, I, you know, I have this really bad habit. So I, I, I've got that, uh, the, that Fujax jersey is in process of being framed right now. And my, my, the problem is my, my assistant keeps giving me crap because there's like nowhere to put these jerseys. Like I've got them all stacked up in my bedroom. <laughs> She's like, where are you going to hang these things? I'm like, I don't know, but I think they're, they're worthy of a frame though, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Let's do it. Yeah. What I really hope is that eventually we have some kick a kick-ass clubhouse uh, uh, for the Free Jacks and we can uh, bring all those jerseys and put them on the wall. What is something you've never done but want to try? Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, there's there, there, there's sort of a few cliche things. You know, um, I, I, one for me, I'm a, I'm a big scuba diver. So when I was in Australia playing rugby, I got to spend a couple of months on the Great Barrier Reef uh, scuba diving, and. Uh, uh, you know, I've always loved diving and my kids dive with me. Um, and, uh, I've never had a chance to dive with sharks. And so, um, you know, high on my, uh, my bucket list for uh, post pandemic is, uh, my, my new uh, partner, her name is Margaret minister. She's awesome. And she's willing to do almost anything. And, uh, she's agreed to kind of, uh, uh you know, hold my hand as I, uh, go down and, and, and dive with the, the sharks. So that's, uh, okay. That's, that's high on my list. Yeah, that was scary. I, lo- I love that stuff. And sharks are, I think sharks are the most maligned creatures on the planet. I mean, yeah. how, how many, how many people get killed by sharks? Like maybe a few dozen a year at the most, right? And we kill millions and millions. Like these sharks, they, they, they deserve some respect. Last question and to bring it full circle. If you were running the free jacks day to day, what would you be focusing on? This, this youth thing for me is the thing that matters the most. Um, and, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of young kids out there that are going to take to rugby like crazy. And I think, you know, you guys have the right character. Like, you know, you, you guys, you know, if you guys drive, uh, you know, youth rugby uh, in New England and we have so many great colleges here that like, I mean, we have the perfect infrastructure to create a great long-term rugby ecosystem. And, you know, I really think of you, Mags and, you know, and Eric uh, leading the charge as we sort of go into the process of, you know, building New England into a rugby, you know, powerhouse region over the next uh, 20 years. And um, it's really, really inspirational. And I, I, I you know, I, uh, you know, I'm so, so inspired by what you guys do. And both of my, my sons both play and, um, you know, the, the, I can't wait to, to take my sons to the uh, championship game and watch the Free Jacks win. That's going to be fun. All right, friends. What another fantastic full contact CEO with the amazing Andy Palmer. Some tremendous nuggets in there, Andy. Thank you so much. I just want to make sure that we reemphasize the work you're doing with the R's for Rugby Project with uh, you know former national team player Mike Petri, uh, the children's book, and getting that out in the community. Can you give us a bit more details on that? Yeah, you just um, if you if you search ours for rugby on Instagram or on on Facebook, you get the promotion. Just click through, and and uh, we'll send you ten free books. And all we ask is that you uh, get uh, at least a couple of those books into the hands of some some local teachers, so they can read them to their kids and uh, give the rest out to your. Uh, uh, you know, your teammates who are, who are having kids and, um, uh, uh, help the, their, their kids understand what it is their, their parents do when they go out there on Saturday and, and come back, uh, bruised and battered. That's awesome. So I can order a few, I can order a package, you know, take one to the local library, take a couple of the school library, 
That's right. We just want to, we just want to get the books out there. We just, we, you know, this is what we need, right? We need to start, you know, exposing kids to rugby as early as possible. And, uh, Mike's done a great job. I mean, it's really, it's a fantastic book and, and, uh, uh, appreciate, uh, everybody out there get, getting the good word out. What a great way to share the game. R is for rugby. What a tremendous initiative. Thank you, Andy. Uh, for joining us today today and sharing such wisdom, not only uh, with the Free Jacks, but all our listeners out there. Thank you very much and looking forward to seeing you at the home opener pretty soon. And of course, thanks to our friends Felskin, the official Chucka of the New England Free Jacks. Andy's going to get a nice sweet pair of the great Felskin Chucka branded with the New England Free Jacks logo. Coming your way, Andy. Thanks for a great episode. Thanks to our friends, Felskin, for the awesome shoes. Thank you to all of you for tuning in once again to an enriching Full Contact CEO. Be sure to tune in next week as we have another very, very special guest. See you then. Cheers. Cheers.